This is the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your beautiful local community radio station. This voice that's speaking now is probably Stefan Hosetter, but I'm not sure. Yeah, most likely. Most likely. This one's Lauren Latour. There you go. Welcome to the new year. You're listening to the Green Majority on CIUT FM or on Harbinger Podcast Network, available on any of your devices that have podcast listening abilities or the internet. We like to call ourselves so-called Canada's longest running environmental news podcast. So for the next hour, we're going to dig into some environmental news, chat about some headlines, chat about some nonsense opinions. And then Stefan is going to be interviewing Craig Desson, who is a documentary producer at the CBC, who really is into trains. And so we geek about trains for a good 30 minutes. You will learn more about trains than, I'm going to say actually this, this audience probably has some big train nerds out there. So some of you probably won't learn a lot about trains. But I'm going to say most of you will learn at least something about trains. That's my offer. And like, honestly, even if you do already, we love talking about trains. Everybody loves talking about trains. I actually feel like trains have become, and maybe it's just indicative of like the ways in which my Twitter is like curated especially for me, but everybody on Twitter loves trains. Twitter loves trains. Twitter is upset that there aren't more trains. I'm upset that there aren't more trains. And I think it was especially apparent this past holiday season how badly people need and want a more robust, well-functioning train network within this makeshift country than we currently have because um, people would love to not fly. That would be great, not just from an environmental standpoint, but also just from like a convenience and ease of access standpoint. And then when we do heavily rely on our train system, on our passenger rail network, at least it completely crumbles out from under us. Yeah. Even though like the least amount of weather trains are like, no, I don't feel like it anymore, which is not the case in other places. We should make trains are robust vehicles just here specifically. They are just here specifically. And like, even if you're looking at like, the tiny like micro train level, well, micro train, nobody calls them micro trains. But in Ottawa, we theoretically have a rapid trail system or rapid trail, light rail system. Wow. And there are many, 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 many reasons that Ottawa's light rail system, which went online several years ago, has never functioned at full capacity. I don't believe it's ever really functioned past 50% capacity. One of the reasons, though, is that it was never built to withstand snow. So it derails all the time. Which is ridiculous because, again, listeners, I live in Ottawa. It yes. snows a lot here. You'd think that would be a thing they would consider. Right? think that would be something that, like, I'm not an engineer, first to admit it. I don't have one of those weird little pinky rings. I didn't go to school for a zillion in five years. But, like, it's good to take calculations like that into account. To me, that's almost like, I don't know, building a swimming pool on, like, the top floor of a hotel and not calculating the fact that, like, water is going to go in that one day. Yeah. But before we get to the news and the interviews, as always, or often, I guess is more accurate, some thoughts that we like to think about, starting with you, Lauren. Yeah, for new listeners, because I know we do have some new ones. This is just something we do sometimes. We start off the show with inane ramblings because it's our show and we can do what we want. So I felt like we'd be remiss if, even though this was this was kind of a, a bit of a last week weekend story, 
it still felt like something we had to bring up. Just transition is something that we've been talking about and hearing about for years now. It's not a new concept. It's always been a little bit controversial. And it's something we're going to increasingly hear about in like the months and weeks and years ahead, especially because this year, 2023, is theoretically a year that the federal government is going to be bringing just transition language to the fore. Just transition was also something that we heard about a lot. We, we always have heard about it a lot at COP, but this year it was especially kind of controversial because what we had in a really sort of agitating slot, like when I say powerful, I don't mean powerful in a good way, but this this really prevalent conversation in which oil and gas producing nations and oil and gas producing companies were using the language around just transition to just refer to like, they, they were talking about a just transition that continued to include oil and gas, which was like, it's 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 annoying when language is co-opted in in that way and that so so that's a that is kind of an ongoing qualm in the just transition space anyway setting that aside that's not actually what i want to talk about today i just want to lead into it this that way last week again twitter was all a buzz because danielle smith who is the current premier of alberta but whose seat it will be contested i believe in the spring when that election happens brought up just transition on i believe like a radio show and some of the quotes are are pretty ridiculous of course she's like she's really pushing back on the idea or she was pushing back on the idea of of a just transition at least how she understands it and how a lot of people are talking about it exact quotes were well, well, let me see. Okay, so this is from a Calgary Herald article. So like, it's not take with a grain of salt. I don't believe they're stating too many untruths here, but it's just it's such a biased piece because of course it is. I believe it's post media. But the article starts starts off. Alberta has no intention of following a federal plan to transition workers out of the energy sector. Premier Daniel Smith said on Saturday, and then the direct quote is, we are not going to be shutting down our oil and gas industry or oil and natural gas industry, she says. We are not going to be transitioning our workers who are in good, high-paying, meaningful, important jobs into installing solar panels, which is the idiocy Elizabeth May was first promoting when this kind of thing came out. And that was in response to the Minister of Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson, saying a couple weeks ago that that the transition bill is going to going to target, quote unquote, sustainable jobs, which is actually like something that, that people in in my world are getting their backs up about because it's like, what are what are we doing with the language here? What are we fiddling around with? Because just transition does have like a very discreet and specific definition as as outlined by the labor community. Then you've got a lot of social justice communities that have pretty specific ideas about what just transition means. Anyway, even just the fact that the federal government isn't maybe necessarily like using just transition, but is using like sustainable transition language is like a little bit is worrisome to me for very different reasons than it is worrisome to <laughs> Daniel Smith. Anyway, I just felt like we had to bring it up. The conversation we were having around just transition that we have had in recent years is like, oh, is it the right language to be using? Because we do see pushback from some people about it because they get freaked out. The, the concept, the word transition is one that's intimidating to people. And I understand that. Change is scary. Change is hard. The indication that you're going to be transitioning into a different line of work is is a hard one for people to come to terms with. And, it's, and it leads to a lot of uncertainty. So the conversation last year was a lot about like, well, should we be using different words? And it's like, well, I don't know. We're kind of we're we're already here. We're already this far. So maybe the conversation this year isn't going to be so much about like, well, what specific syntax should we be using? But it is going to be pushing back on the idea that a just transition is a bad and negative thing within, especially within the province of Alberta. But like, that's the thing. I don't need to really belabor the point with our listeners. Our listeners know we need a just transition. We need a just transition because we don't want what happened to cod fishery workers in Newfoundland to happen to oil and gas workers. We know that this industry is sunsetting. Yes, it's maybe not sunsetting tomorrow. It will take several years to decades, but it still is. There is going to be a ramping down of work within this industry, whether as a result of 
a shift because of climate change or a shift because of automation and like the introduction of AI into into heavy industry. But like these jobs are going to become increasingly scarce. We need to make sure that these communities are taken care of. We need to make sure that this province is taken care of, much as Danielle Smith might think otherwise. We do care. Yeah. People are concerned. So, yeah, just transition. It's going to be that's it's it's all a buzz in 2023. Pardon me yeah. for using the phrase buzz twice in like a five minute period. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's kind of amazing about some of this pushback is that a renewable energy is booming in Alberta. And so, like, there are already a whole bunch of jobs being created for people very much like the people who are would be impacted by the just transition. And so it's sort of happening already and in, in like in a, in a small way, you know, the more automation that comes into the oil industry and the more needed for capacity for build outs in the renewable industry, we'll see some of this happening automatically. And then to sort of flash back to last week's episode, some of the conversation about where this goes, because I do think it's concerning to only focus on moving a only oil workers and then also only to renewable energy, because that's very technocratic way of thinking, looking at it. And one of the things about The End of This World, the book that we talked about last week that excited me so much, was Angela Luke's chapter about the caring economy. Because that's going to be a huge part of where you imagine a lot of these people transitioning to, is not into just more tech jobs or more you know, heavy industry jobs, but also into places where you're taking care of people and we're taking care of each other. And, you know, maybe some of these people are building trains, because again, we really like trains. But yeah, there's just no matter what language we use, it's never going to be good enough. We're not going to win you over with language. I could call it, I don't know, instead of like a Just Transition Act, I could call it like, oh my God, I'm looking around my desk. The Hair Clip and Purple Marker Act. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make, like, it's, it's, it's nonsense. It's yeah. not that words don't matter. Words, words matter. Of course. We literally talk for an hour every week. Like words matter. I understand <laughs> yeah. that. Any communications person can tell you that. Any organizer or activist can tell you that. If you're going to a door and you're canvassing, you have to really figure out exactly what it is you're you're talking to people and how you're messaging. It's not that words don't matter. But this kind of bad faith pushback from the UCP is going yeah. to be there regardless of what we call it. And it yeah. is bad faith pushback. Bottom line. It's pushback by people who have a vested interest in the continuation of an industry which, yes, is making a pretty penny right now. And they don't care that it's not going to make any money in 10 years because in 10 years they've already made bank and they'll 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 be making it somewhere else. The the one last thing I did want to mention is something because because, again, of course, I'm reading this freaking Calgary Herald article. It's talking about like various ways that Smith said energy sector job growth will occur in areas like oil well remediation, hydrogen development, and carbon capture, which the province has been advancing for more than a decade. And that's language that we will continue to hear is, well, just language of false solutions and people trying to say that, like, well, actually, we don't need to transition these workers like or these industries because because we are doing carbon capture and storage and we are investing in hydrogen. And the thing is, it's like those are both false solutions. We don't need to dig into the carbon capture utilization and storage and hydrogen conversations right now, but just know that like those are red herrings. Those are just ways of continuing to prop up this industry for decades and decades and continue to, I don't know, condemn us all to heat, death, and drowning. Like it's not the vibe. And honestly, I would love for more oil workers to work in oil remediation. I just want those people to be paid for by the oil industry itself. Because they're the ones who caused them needed to be remediated. Exactly. Like, exactly. 
All right. And so now that we've solved the just transition problem, you're welcome, everybody. We're going to go to a quick music break, and then we're going to come back with a bit of news, and then Craig Dessen to talk about trains. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which we found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. Wonderful shows over there. Go check them out if you have not. My name is Stephen Hoistetter. I'm here with Lauren Latour, and we are going to do 2023's first bout of news. And I don't think there's any more appropriate way to begin our first section of news by informing you that 2022 was the fifth hottest year ever recorded, and the last eight years have been the eight hottest ever recorded. So we are on an eight-year streak, and very likely due to that, you could probably guess that the next couple of years will be hotter still, because there's nothing we're doing to change that. And, you know, as we're living this deja vu life, we also can tell you that Europe is once again experiencing a heat wave. This is not the heat wave back in the summer. This is a new heat wave, which some experts are calling it the most extreme in European history. And the reason why you're probably not hearing so much about it is, of course, because it is winter over there. So people aren't dying, but the above seasonal temperatures are breaking records across the continent. Other things, European Union-wise, the EU is now requiring European industries to reduce emissions by 62% from 2005 levels by 2030, which their old target was 43%, so it's a pretty significant increase. And finally, Extinction Rebellion is abandoning disruptive protests. The group said, quote, in a time when speaking out and taking action are criminalized, Building collective power, strengthening in number, and thriving through bridge building is a radical act. They're focusing on an April 21st protest to surround the UK Houses of Parliament without breaking anything or gluing themselves to anything or getting in people's way. Meanwhile, new UK laws criminalizing civil disobedience have landed at least 13 UK climate activists in jail, sometimes for months on end, for being a public nuisance with a campaign of Just Stop Oil. I think this last little bit about Extinction Rebellion is really interesting. I, I knew that the group was kind of, well, regrouping in light of sort of receiving a lot of criticism and pushback over the last few years of, of their various tactics that they were utilizing. I hadn't heard this, though, that they were like fully shifting tact there, really away from, I guess, moving away from civil disobedience and more so to kind of like a creative direct action focus. Not that not that creative direct action is never civil disobedience, but they're not they're not mutually exclusive. But actions are not always civil disobedience because civil disobedience, like the definition is, is, is you are breaking a law in some capacity kind of thing. So this is kind of interesting. And I think it's indicative of the fact that a lot of people in the movement are sort of taking stock and figuring out it's we're we're. People always ask, ask ourselves and we're always asking each other, like, why aren't we winning more? What is holding us back? from the progress that we want to be seeing. But it's kind of, it's interesting that a group that 
really built its name and came up around the idea of like, well, it's right in the name. It's it's in Rebellion that really kind of around that kind of roguish, wildcatty action and demonstration to kind of really drive home and emphasize the the desperation of the time that we're in and the urgency is is kind of shifting a little bit that way. I think their use of the term, like when they talk about like building collective power and bridge building being radical acts, that's totally true. And I think it's it's really great that that's maybe what they're going to be investing a lot of time and focus in going forward. Because I think coming out of the pandemic and realizing that Build Back Better maybe didn't, and and when I say Build Back Better, I don't mean like the like the formal stuff put forward by the Biden administration. I mean, it sort of in just like in the grassroots way that 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 terminology was coming up several years ago, like that maybe didn't thrive as much as we needed it to. And what we've actually seen, in fact, in the last few years is is the rise of of the far right and extremism in sort of response to the ways in which people have been really have, have felt abandoned the last few years. So I think the left is sort of realizing that we we need to do a way better job of broadening the tent and speaking to more people in a way that makes them feel seen and welcomed and excited about engaging with leftist ideals and within leftist spaces. So I think if if that's one of the things they're going to be focusing on, I think that's really positive. And I think I think this shift is indicative of a, of a shift that we're seeing throughout the movement right now, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think if folks want to get a better sense of maybe why this decision was made, they should go back and check out an episode we recorded right around this time last year with one of Extinction Rebellion's UK's co-founders, Stu Basden, because he talks actually exactly about some of the problems that he was seeing with this. His, actually, in that interview, he basically makes the case that the Extinction Rebellion UK should close down because he sort of thought like we, they had done the thing that they needed to do and that they needed to create new space for new groups to, to rise up. And actually, some of what he suggests here is seemingly the direction they're actually going. So that's really interesting to hear that. And one of the things he was saying was that the suppression by the government had become so swift and so you know, jackbooted, really, that it was very hard for people to join the movement in lighter ways because it really became a, a thing. If you put up any type of protest, they were getting arrested so quickly and so violently that it was actually only like the hardcore who could really do it. And he was seeing this as a very actual difficult thing to join because of the way the UK government and the police had shifted. And so I think really, actually, if you want to get a better sense of why they're doing this, check out that interview because it foreshadows this decision a lot in interesting ways. Yeah, because not only like you were referencing with that conversation, when the crackdown becomes so swift and so and so intense and so quick, it means that not only can can sort of like the hardcore engage with those actions, it also means that only the extremely privileged can engage with those actions. Only white people who face less police violence and like, let's be real, people who come from a, a certain degree of wealth that means that they can be absent from work for several weeks or pay bail or any any number of the expenses that come along with being incarcerated in some capacity or maybe not even incarcerated, maybe just arrested and, and inconvenienced for the day. And this doesn't mean civil disobedience is never a good idea. It definitely like it, it is. And it, like we we can't write that off completely as sort of like an avenue for action. But it does mean you have to sort of like reevaluate and figure out like, OK, who are we promoting within the movement? Who are we platforming? Who are we making sure is in front of a camera? Because that's the thing. If if you're watching a protest play out on TV and all you're seeing are a bunch of like 
relatively middle class white folks being arrested or whatever, then 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 the inherent message you're receiving is that the climate movement is for and by white people when that is that is not the case. And that is not who actually takes action in in meaningful ways most of the time anyway. And like, that's the thing. It's like we're having this whole conversation about Extinction Rebellion and like civil disobedience is still happening. And when civil disobedience does happen, it's still primarily is done by like folks of color and at least here in so-called Canada, indigenous peoples, right? There are constantly land defenders engaging in in what we would maybe categorize as civil disobedience. They might not categorize it as that because a lot of folks don't view that work as activism. It's land defense. It's enforcing and reinforcing rights and sovereignty. Yeah, exactly. Could not have said better myself. Thank you, Lauren. We're back with Craig Dessen, a documentary producer of the CBC. Really lovely conversation, lovely man. You'll learn a lot about trains. So stay with us after the break. We'll be right back. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. Featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner podcast. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you haven't already. I am here, as previewed earlier on the show, with Craig Dessen, a documentary producer at the CBC who put together a piece about passenger rail in Canada that got me very excited. So I'm very excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. So for folks who are listening to the show, they know we are a very pro-train show. Trains are great. Okay. But, but train rail in Canada, not so much for folks who you know, have to even get from between here and Ottawa, where you know, trains do exist. It is consistently quite an adventure shall we say. But it wasn't always that way. And, and sort of your documentary dives back into the sort of history of passenger when, when it was much better and then sort of follows up to, to, to now. So for starters, can you tell us sort of what got you interested in passenger rail in Canada? Well, a few things. For a while, I was in a long distance relationship with someone in Montreal and I was working in Toronto. And so I spent a long time, many, many months, taking that via train back and forth between Toronto and Montreal. And so I thought I was like a bit of a, 
not an expert, but I was like, I felt like a super user. Like I felt a lot about, like I knew about how like trains worked and what it was like to travel on the train. And then I did, I went to Germany. I did this journalism fellowship. And in Germany, like many places in Europe, trains are like key central pieces of of infrastructure. And I just started to just like realize like everything that was lacking in trains and then also realizing like what a powerful tool trains can be for moving people between between cities. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what's amazing is that you can maybe we'll get to the a little bit of climate stuff later, but you see in France, for example, they're able to do things like banning short haul flights because they could say take the train, which yeah. does not exist to us. And if you look at maps of, you know, what our train system looks like here compared to really almost anywhere in Europe, it's embarrassing to be to be frank. But that wasn't always the case. And that's what part of what your documentary interested me so much was that, like, there used to be some truly impressive amounts of rail lines. So can you talk about that? Like, when was the when we are at the peak, what did it look like? Wow, it's it's really un believable like what you could do or where you could go on a train so i'll start with like where i am in like montreal so to the north of montreal is the the laurentians which is sort of like a mountain range you do a lot of skiing there mont tremblant is there just north of where i live in the plateau in montreal there was a train station and still there it's now a metro and it used to be the train station itself was a joe fresh for a while and now it is just empty. But it's this beautiful Art Deco train station abandoned. And from that train station, you used to be able to take trains all the way up to Tremblant, to the kind of... And it wasn't just for skiing. Like, all those, all those regions were served by trains. And it's interesting. Now, we do have a highway up to Tremblant. It's a total nightmare. And on the weekends, it's totally backed up and it takes you like an hour, two hours to do it. So anyways, so there was that. There were trains. There was another train line that is sort of similar story out in on BC, on Vancouver Island, between Souk and uh, Victoria. Souk was then kind of like a lumber town. Now it's a kind of like a bedroom community for Victoria. There used to be a commuter train between these two places. And you could literally now, if that train line existed, all that congestion between those two places would no longer be there anymore. And then furthermore, like there was just CN and the other kind of train companies ran these incredibly vast train networks where you could pretty much go anywhere where parts of Canada are are settled by train. Like you could go to Owen Sound by train. And it wasn't just like now where you kind of have these like feeder routes. It was literally I could go from like, yeah, the Laurentians to Peterborough by train. And not only that, I could go all over the states. Like I could go to by train. I could go to Boston from Montreal. I could go to Chicago. Now there is one train that leaves, I don't know how often, very infrequently to New York City from Montreal. And it's sort of like a tourist train. It takes 10 hours when it takes five hours to drive. So the train infrastructure pretty much touched the whole country and there were little towns. Actually, another thing, there was a, you could take a train to Prince Edward Island. They actually had train ferries. They would load the trains onto boats, passenger trains, 
And then they would unload them in PEI. And then there was a train across, across PEI. You get there from New Brunswick. I would have to check. I don't even think you can take, like, I think many of the maritime provinces, such as New Brunswick, do not even have passenger trains. I would have to check. So, you know, it was another world for train travel. And then I'll also add, trains were, they were, they were kind of decadent. Like the train ride, you would be inside the train car, especially over kind of the upper class, and you read these descriptions of what the trains were like, and it's like velvet interiors with like wood panels. Like, you know, train travel was, was glamorous the way that the only, the way that like air travel is, is glamorous now, or, or I guess maybe like a cruise ship. So there was also like the tr- experience of traveling by train was also something that, that's sort of been lost in Canada. Yeah. I hear from time to time some of the stories of people who sort of took the sort of train across Canada. You know, my mom, for example, when she came back to Canada at one point, she ended up taking a ship to Vancouver and then training across the whole country. And she remembers that trip very fondly. And you still can do it. But I think I remember once looking for it and it was thousands of dollars. Like it was more money to take a train in four days than it would be to do it in any other possible way. We somehow taken this great infrastructure and turned it into the most expensive and often the longest time you could spend. And yet we do need, I think very clearly to get back to this trains. But before we get there, let's talk a bit of the history. What happened? Like this is huge amounts of infrastructure, huge amounts of money would have been put into this. And, and a ton of people have been moving on these trains. Millions, millions. I found, I try to remember, I think it was, well, it was tens of millions of people took the train every, like the 1920s. I'd have to find the number, but yeah, I think it was, you know, it, around 20 million people a year. Which, and listen, there was only like, Canada's population was less than 10 million people. It was a very, very small country. If you wanted to go anywhere, you probably took the train. And this, this I found the most interesting part of researching this doc is like, what really happened to the train? It's like one word the car, but then researching the, tr- the car, learning about the car and how it came out of the train is really fascinating because what it was, was the, the car was really like the iPhone of that era. Like it was this revolutionary product, tool, technology, like a sing- you put a single combustion engine on like four wheels and people love the car. Before we had all the infrastructure for the car, before we built the highways, before we built all the roads, you had this like nascent technology called the automobile. And you would read in the press in the 1920s, people discovering road trips, just like how fun it is to just like get in a car with a bunch of your friends or your family and just like drive up to another town and you can leave when you want and you can stay for however you want because, and it's probably an imprecise metaphor, but it's sort of what Kyle was thinking. It was like, from the, from the perspective of the car, the train was like, it was like cable television, right? Like you had these kind of like monolithic, kind of like big companies, train companies were, were very huge at a couple of players. It wasn't quite a monopoly situation, but it was not like there was a lot of choice. And then the car came around and then it was suddenly the car was like freedom from the train schedule. 
right? Like it was freedom to leave when you want, go wherever you want. And people were incredibly enthusiastic about the car. And I kind of get into that a piece. It was just like, the car is like, is pleasurable. Like it's like people found, discovered kind of pleasure in driving the way they kind of discovered pleasure and like, you know, just like scrolling through the screen. And then of course, the businesses loved the car or rather the motor vehicle because it got them out of having to use the freight trains. So the freight companies, same thing, like close, from what I could tell, it seemed like it was like they set the prices, they set the schedule. And I think the truck was basically like small players. They could do it for less, more flexibility. So that was great. And then, of course, the automotive industry, right, at the very beginning, it was just really North America building cars for the rest of the world. So much like tech today, the car was creating tons and tons of, like, new jobs. So what the, the kind of discourse around the car, you know, starting around the Second World War was this is the future, right? Like, this is the world we're going to. and the train is an antique. It's like, this is an antiquated technology. You know, we don't need it anymore. We're going to start to like shut this off. So you start to see, first off, it's just like passenger levels start to drop quite abruptly in the 1920s. I found this like Globe article saying it was like in the course of five years, it dropped. I need to check the numbers, but within the millions of people. And so what then begins to happen is the trains are no longer Passenger rail is no longer like a very profitable business and the train companies start to want to find ways to get out of it. And what then happens is it's a very kind of like Canadian thing. It's like, well, it's not really like a business anymore, but we still want to have, you know, still want to have like tr people, the public still wants the trains. So we're going to start to subsidize the trains. And we're going to start just making it like, it's a bit like broadcasting. You know, we're going to make the train companies do these lines, reach these particular parts of the country. And then from a business point of view, I think you then start to see a kind of degrading in the on-train experience because it's no longer like real kind of competition. The train companies are just like, well, we just kind of move people back and forth and we, we get our, our subsidy. And you really start to see it. I remember reading it. I didn't include any of the doc, but in like, the 1960s, the 1950s, is like the train companies are essentially saying like CP is like, sorry, CN is the president's like, we're not interested. Passenger trains are over. Like they're literally like the train companies are saying like, we're not interested in, in doing this anymore. This is not the future. While at the same time, you have the, um, or as I was told in my reporting, like the Ministry of Transportation, Transport Canada was probably called something different back then. They made some very clear policy decisions to back the car and the highway and the plane. And they, their view, and it was interesting, I was talking to this guy, Harry Gao, who's been doing, he works for Transport Action Canada. He's been doing advocacy for public transportation for years. He was even saying oh, the early 60s, a lot of the people working in Transport uh, Canada were from the Air Force and were coming out of aviation. And so like the whole culture within the Ministry of Transportation was very much focused on the airplane and focused on roads. And so the particularly of air transportation, the federal government 
poured tons of money into the aviation industry. Remember, like they eventually, they first off started running an airline. Like remember before Air Canada used to be nationalized. And from the point of view of government, all the investment in transportation was focused on highways and planes. And it's actually interesting. If you try and find out how much money is spent on roads in Canada, I actually don't think it's possible. It's like, I really tried to see, but it's like, it's like almost asking like how many dropped or how many snowflakes were in the blizzard. Like, it's just like so many levels of government across the country spend money on roads that you actually cannot see. So that was the other thing. It's like the public investment was going into those modes of transportation. And the idea was, you know, kind of a lot of like how we see over the air broadcasts today. Like, we're like, okay, this is from an era, we're keeping this on, but we're not going to invest in it. The transportation is going to be in a car. Of course, Europe was doing something totally different, and they were building high-speed trains during this era, but in North America, not so much. Yeah, and what's amazing about this, in a depressing way, is that in the process of doing these things, we really managed to create monopolies in almost every other option but car, right? Like, the bus systems ended up being given over to monopolies. And so when they closed down, now we have no bus systems for large swaths of this country. You know, and if via rail decides they don't want to drive a train place to place, then you have none of that. And then you get the difficulties you had with air travel, let alone the climate conversation, which we'll get to in a second. But like even in air travel, if WestJet and Air Canada decide to cancel your flight and say it's a safety issue, you have no recourse there either. And so we've sort of trapped people into dealing with these monolithic companies in every other option of transport except for the car. And, and so if you don't drive, you are really quite stuck. There's a concept of freedom that I find interesting. That was a tweet I think I read from someone who is in, from Finland who'd come to the States. And, and, they were, and the person from the States was sort of like criticizing Finland for not being as free as they were. And the reason that behind it is like, well, you know, you have all, the, you pay all these taxes and you all these things. And the person is like, but yeah, I can quit my job and not lose health insurance. And, and it's like the decision of the government to step back in all of these places has actually really hurt individual Canadians' freedom in terms of their ability to travel unless they get a car and sort of subscribe to this particular model, which is expensive and dangerous, you know, and all these other things. But we really have trapped people. Like, there's not a lot of choice here. And it's interesting. It's funny you mentioned, like, monopolies. Like, it came up when I was talking to this guy, Anthony Pearl, who was on the VIA board. And he was talking about the privatization of CN in the 90s. I think it was, like, it was like 95 or 97. I would need to check. But they privatized CN. They gave CN, the, the, the private new owners, the business and the train tracks. And so VIA now, according to Anthony Pearl, is basically like has a monopoly pricing situation for its own business. Like it, it has to basically most of its running, most of its trains on, on tracks where it has no other options. And he said like, you know, this is a situation. He says that VIA, in other, like in other jurisdictions, you can imagine them creating like a regulator where they would have some sort of sort of intermediary instead of just CN very much setting the terms for the foundations of the business and of Via's business. And then the other thing too, is like 
like via loses so much money there there's subs i would say they'll lose money it, it's not even like it's a it's a crown corporation like it's not there to generate a, a profit i don't believe but you know via also had really deep cuts by both the conservative and liberal governments and what happened was it was then in the 90s and so i talked to this former transportation minister david colinette and he said, so he tried, he actually got like hundreds of millions of dollars back into VIA because it was basically, according to him, it was like in total decay, disarray, like the stations were a mess. And then he said, as even then, being a federal cabinet minister, it was almost impossible to get money into VIA. And he said, like, you know, going to the bureaucrats, kind of interacting with his colleagues, People would say, like, well, why are we spending money on trains? Like, why not, like, a, a new road here? Or, like, what about the, a, a ferry to this island? And so we just said it's, like, people just could not compute why, yeah, why would we put money into this train service? And then, of course, it's, like, it's probably, like, comes to where you're, we're kind of going to this conversation. It's, like, researching trains, it was, like, it was, like, watching one of those, like, thriller movies where you know something that all the characters don't know. You know what I mean? And everyone's just like, we don't need the train. We don't need the train. We've got the car. We've got the plane. And then you're like, ah, pretty soon you're going to like become aware that like burning high carbon uh, systems for like transportation are going to become a huge problem. And the very like essential nature of these technologies that are lower to the future actually have baked into them a problem that is going to be like a massive societal problem, which is like where we are. Yeah. And you're going to go back to this need of, oh, wait, trains. And I feel like, you know, there are so many examples of this in my mind of how some of the answers that we have to find to solve climate change are basically stuff we did 100, 150 years ago. You know, like even just the, the way that good, well-made tools and products was a sign of value and, and quality versus the newest thing. You know, a lot of these different ways of thinking that would have existed back then are so necessary now. And so as you alluded, trains have sort of become the climate answer. You know, like if you look at some of the places that are successfully lowering transportation emissions, almost exclusively they're coming from trains right now. And you can imagine, you know, there's some talk of further down the road, you know, hydrogen freight trucks and stuff like that, which mm -hmm. is fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are other things that are not trains, but like it's sort of for me, like when people are sort of pushing for, you know, fusion technology versus solar. And it's like solar exists right now and is very cheap. Trains exist right now and are very cheap. And so like we yeah. could just like in comparison to like trying to come up with a new technology to use the road infrastructure, we could just build well-maintained fast trains and do this. And so as you're researching, is there any hope for train travel once more in this country? Like, are there people making an effort to make this better? Do we have hope that, you know, we might get back some of this yeah. infrastructure? Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like part of the problem I was kind of learned from reporting the story is that like, it's really, we don't have expertise in Canada, great expertise in building trains, right? So it's like normally when we build a train, we have like a we, we create these consortiums 
And often we're leaning on lots of expertise from European companies. So we're kind of like bringing in engineers. Like, compare that to building a highway or a road in Canada where there's like engineering companies across the country who know what they're doing and who can just like put that together. So this is where it gets interesting. Montreal is in the midst of building this new light rail. So there's two kind of interesting bright spots for one. The first one is the REM. So they're building 67 kilometers of light rail in Montreal that's going to connect towns, municipalities around the island. And they have built this at a crazy fast speed. Like in a number of years, we are going to have part of the REM like operational in the spring. And you are just like watching this thing being built like in Montreal, like like the, you can see it going out along the highway out towards uh, Vaudreuil, the West Island. And like every time you drive by it, they've built more of it. And what they're doing, and it is, there's, controver- there's controversy around it, but basically the province has handed it over to the provincial pension fund company. So the main kind of, kind of provincial-wide pension fund then created an infrastructure company. And this infrastructure company exists to build big infrastructure projects. And what they're hoping, and I talked to them to do, is create those expertise in Canada for building rail and for them to become like a rail creating kind of like organization. And they will do projects outside of Quebec. Like they won't do it in Quebec. And it's cool. It's like state of the art. It's like fully automated. The trains are going to be like every like five, 10 minutes. There are stations going up everywhere and it's going to get people out of their car. So that is very exciting because it's it's happening. Like I think of that, like that streetcar they're trying to build on St. Clair in, in Toronto. And like they just, they, you know what I mean? Like they, they've given up on it. And so here it's like, okay, wow, we're actually building these projects and it's not going to happen in our lifetime. The other thing that is very interesting to, to watch out for is the high frequency rail plan that is, looks like they're keen to build. So this would be building basically uh, trains. VIA would have its own trains, but it might not be VIA operating on it. That is like a whole other story that's worth looking into. And so this would be, you know, this is multi-billion dollar passenger train network to give passenger lines in the Quebec City-Windsor corridor. And it would be amazing. Like, I think it's still very much we're at the like drawing lines on a map phase of it. But they're saying you could go from like Ottawa to Toronto in about like three hours, like actually shaving time. The other irony, too, is like it actually takes longer now to get places by train in Canada than it did 20 years ago. It's like we've we've gone backwards. So I think and the other thing that's also should look at that's very influential is what's happening in the States. In the last infrastructure bill, I'd have to check the number, but I believe it's like there's like $66 billion for Amtrak. like. So the Americans, it looks like anything could happen, but are putting a, like a generationally huge investment into rail. And what happens in the States often has a big influence in Canada. 
you know, and so I think there is reason to be optimistic because like fundamentally the amount of energy it creates to move people on a train versus a car versus a plane, there's just like a math to it that I think now is like we're trying to bring down carbon emissions. It's it's clear. So yeah, so there's there's reason there's reason to to be hopeful, but also like you know this high frequency rail. I might be riding that. Might be like my retirement trip. You know, I'll ride that train. I mean, I, I remember I got a bunch of friends who went to York University here in in Toronto, and they were talking about something about when they started going. They were told that oh yeah, by by your second year, there's going to be a subway out there. And then I was talking to a to another friend of mine who was a professor there, and he's like, oh yeah, when I started in the '90s, they told me that I was going to, and I retired before yeah. it got built. It's there now, but you know. Once the once the rubber hits the road or the the steel hits the tracks, perhaps then we can actually start start really talking about it. Because you're right, you know these are huge projects and they take a while to build, no matter what. Even well done, like even the places that you know, are doing them quickly yeah. are it's still a, a significant investment. And so yeah, we have to see it, and and, and but it takes some time to to begin. And I hope that you know the Canadian government sort of begins to see the writing on the wall and. Because you can't, you can't, you could not do say what France is doing, banning short haul flights, if you don't have strong high-speed rail as another option you know you just, you just can't do it and so you need to decarbonize and to like we're a huge country and so like if, if people need to get from vancouver to you know to toronto or montreal or ottawa often and if we can't give them a way to do that that is not high in carbon that we will never stop you know and i think too there's so much we're doing wrong with trains like i feel like too it's like people don't see unless you've been to europe or asia the you know it's like via is like a pet peeve but like you have to line up for trains you know what i mean like they've the experience of being on a train and they do it in the states but it's like taking a train in canada is a lot like flying right like it's it's a kind of similar experience where you you line up and they they weigh your bag, which I've always been like, okay, interesting. Like it's like a train, but sure, I'm sure there's a reason for it. And then and then you go in your seat, and then they come by with like a little cart, and you like order your sandwich. Literally flying, as opposed to like Europe, where it's like a the stations are like all built in the center of the city, and I think that's also something. It's like a lot of like I know Kingston is kind of like out in the burbs now. Ottawa, they moved the train station out of the center. But it's like the whole experience of just like going downtown or being downtown, picking up a little croissant and coffee, getting on the hopping on the train five minutes before it leaves on the train. You can bring on your bike. You can walk around. You can go to the club car. You know what I mean? You can play a board game with some friends and have a beer. Like that whole experience is actually, I would say, better than driving where you're strapped into a seat. Like you can't get up. And it's kind of intense. Like driving is intense. You're like literally flying down the highway. Cars are on every side. And, you're, you know, you're trying to like change the music on your Spotify. Or flying, which is just like, oh, you know, it's like so such a process to get on a plane. So there's just like this simplicity to it, you know. And I think, too, it's like rethinking a lot of it. And one thing they're doing in Europe, which I think is so interesting, is they're bringing up, trying to bring back like night trains, right? like sleeper cars, because it's actually from a business perspective, I was thinking about this kind of brilliant, because if you're a business traveler, you got to like leave for your, like save a meeting at 9 a.m. in Winnipeg, 
You know what I mean? Like, you got to go to the airport at, like, 6. You miss dinner with your family. Then you got to, like, land, go to the the hotel, check in, do your meeting. But if it's just, like, or you could just, like, go to the train station at 11 o'clock, fall asleep, you sleep comfortably on a train, you wake up the next morning in the city, get breakfast, you're good to go. Like, there's just a lot of potential with trains that I think we people are not are beginning to to see again, especially as European Europe and Asia just keeps building it and uh, you know making it more and more sophisticated and and usable. Yeah, exactly. You get this chance to sort of see what it could be. You know, like it's it's not like you're just starting to be able to know it could be great. There are these places around the world, many places that are doing it well, and you can just go there and be like, oh, it could be like this, which I think is a lot easier yeah. from a from a standpoint of those brands. But so if folks are as excited as you and I are about trans and want to listen and experience this documentary, how can they do so? So they can go to cbc.ca slash what on earth. And it's the January 1st episode of the podcast. So you can find it there. Amazing. And then it's our tradition to give our guests the, the last word of the show. So if there's anything that you would want people to take away from this interview or anything new that you think of that you're like, oh man, this was really interesting. I want to tell people about it. You have this moment in just a second. But before I throw to you, thank you so much. This has been a conversation with Craig Desson, a documentary producer at the CBC. Really appreciate you coming on the show and teaching us all about trains. And yeah, any last thoughts? My final thought is that trains are all the things we talked about and also this crazy wormhole that you can just go down and then once you're in it you just want to keep going deeper and deeper so now like whenever i open youtube it is just literally like a page of like train content enticing me to go further and further into it and i don't know what it is about trains that brings out this weird obsession in people but it is real yeah totally and if anyone hasn't seen the long, slow TV of just watching a train travel at the normal pace of a train across Europe for like 15 hours. Oh, no. You can find that. The, the other thing I love is just, I took the train from Amsterdam to Madrid and then there's like no commentary. It's just literally some person riding the train in Europe and it's like 40 minutes of nothing, but it's like, you can't look away. It's great. <laughs>